To ship, of course. Welcome to the Ship Show, the podcast where we discuss build engineering, DevOps, release management, and everything in between. I'm Paul Reed, Sober Build Eng on Twitter and at SoberBuildEngineer.com. Tonight for episode 36 from the crew we have. This is Seth at Cheese Plus on Twitter. And this is Yusuf, my fellow scientist on Twitter. Uh, I always ask everyone how they're doing and everybody always says they're cold. Are people keeping warm? Is it warmer? I'm not cold. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, but Yusuf, we're wet. It's been raining raining the last is, is it yeah. been raining down there it, it has yeah yeah and then Aust, has Austin worn back up? Uh, it, it did It did a flip. Uh, yesterday it was 75 and people were in shorts, and then today it was back to like 32. The, the weather hasn't decided where it's going to land. So this so this week, uh, Austin weather will be flipping between spring and winter each day of the week. Flip-flopper. Uh, how yeah. about that cedar stuff? Don't, let's not talk about that. That's why I spent most of the month of January out of Austin. <laughs> On purpose. <laughs> All right, well, tonight uh, we're going to be doing joined by uh, Shanley Kane and Amelia Greenhall. They're going to be talking to us about their new venture that they've been working on and also some of the diversity-related topics that they often discuss. That'll be up in the main segment, but first up, as we always do, news and views. So our first item tonight is kind of an interesting, uh, weird thing. It looks like an Iron Mountain facility, and if you've ever had to do like escrow source stuff, uh, I bet you have Seth with like gaming stuff. Got to put. That oh stuff yeah, we yeah. we were very we were big Iron Mountain customers. I remember the stacks of like game design docs that we'd leave next to the. You know, like games that you'll never ever hear about because they never existed. <laughs> and, uh, well, those are like that. Yeah, in uh, Buenos Aires, the item we marked it in our uh, agenda notes was suspicious Iron Mountain fire is suspicious. Apparently they had a fire that torched a number of documents despite the fact that they have fire suppression and like on-site fire fighters, which seems kind of interesting. Um, yeah, that is kind of odd. I, mean, I, I, I used to work there a long time ago, and it's not at the Buenos Aires, but just for, for the company in general, and it's a little odd to... It's a little shady. Let me just put it that way. Yeah, if you read the article, we'll link to the article that talks about it in the show notes. It kind of reads like, a, I've been playing Grand Theft Auto V, and it reads a little bit like a Grand Theft Auto V <laughs> mission. Um, it does, because they, they talk about the apparently uh, the facility may have held historic bank records from Argentina, going back to the country's default in 2001, according to the article. So... It sounds like one of those, get on a plane, go down and destroy the records and come home or some weird, you know, it's just, yeah. Pay somebody to do that, I assume. <laughs> I guess, I don't know, yeah. It's, it's interesting, though. It, it makes you kind of think about your off-site, on-site data storage and whether, <laughs> you know, I don't know. For sure. Yeah. Next up, we have the blockchain, kind of a throwback to last episode, the blockchain Bitcoin app was removed from the iOS app store. It's kind of a <laughs> weird thing. I guess of the, uh, it had been in the app store for a couple of years, had 120,000 downloads, no customer complaints, and uh, it just, Apple decided to remove it. Their reasoning was, quote-unquote, an unresolved issue, which seems kind of interesting. Blockchain's response is, this is, uh, they're doing this because Bitcoin is challenging the Apple payment ecosystem. I don't know if I buy that. Uh, did you see this? Yeah, I, it's it's it's. I don't. It's it's Apple being capricious as as per usual. At the same time, 
I'm not sure that I was worried that Bitcoin was threatening anything, but at the same time, they, <laughs> they wrote it as if as if Bitcoin is going to change change the world uh, one one blockchain at a time. Um, <laughs> so it's 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 an interesting kind of like counter you know hearing the other side, but at the same time, Apple's done this for just about everything, so I can't say I'm surprised. Yeah. So it was it, you know the main reason when I, you, know, you hear Bitcoin news here and there, kind of week in week out, just you know so and so is now accepting Bitcoin. And oh my God, they made a lot of money. You know, they made 120,000. I think who was it, Newegg or somebody, started accepting Bitcoin. It's like oh, they they actually made revenue on it. It's like okay, whatever. I think the interesting part about this is just it, the bit about the forced. I, they removed it from the uh, App Store. I wonder if they're forced removing it from phones. If they're like making you do an update that is dead or something like that. I actually this uh, we didn't have this on the agenda, but uh, in the same vein, um, the <laughs> Flappy Birds. Developer said he was going to pull it from the App Store too. So it's so sad. Well, so but no, the, it's, it's interesting, so right? It's, sad. It, you know, it, it is very nice to have an App Store, and that seems to be you know phone App Store or in the case of Mac OS, like application App Store. But there's you know when you're that tightly coupled, it's easy for arbitrary decisions like this to get made, and suddenly you can't use Flappy Birds or pay your Bitcoin bills. Well, Flappy Birds uh, dude is taking it down because people are being evil. <laughs> is that why? I don't. I didn't. Yeah, even, yeah, yeah. I, I have my own reasons why I think he's taking it down. I mean, oh no, he has no. It's it's everyone just being evil to him. He's just like screw it. I don't. I don't want to deal with this. Yeah, I don't know. Poor, I think, poor, I think poor it's poor something else. But oh well. All right. Okay, uh, next fair. up, we have a post about high availability and configuration management. Uh, Daniel Lobato, his blog, uh, talking about Puppet and some of the high availability issues that you need to deal with. Of course, he actually mentions some of the other tools, Chef and Ansible and Salt, in the, in the post. Yusuf, you brought this up. Yeah, I, I really liked the article. I thought it had a nice, kind of interesting overview of the different sort of distributed, I guess, puppet um, solutions. But more sort of interesting than that is he brought up uh, sort of pros and cons of you know taking a more distributed approach as opposed to like a, a masterless, like a chef solo or whatever the equivalent is to and uh, puppet. So yeah, definitely um, pretty interesting read. Yeah, I like this post because he kind of talks about problems that you're going to run into with HA, and he, uh, I've heard this problem before and it's always amusing when they talk about it at conferences where it's like when you have all of your nodes check in it, you know how do you do the splay they call it right. so that they don't all DOS the server so he talks about some pros and cons of doing it different ways so it's definitely a good thing to to read just to get some kind of perspectives both ways the other thing I really like about it and this is one of my big things for talking about this year is this whole idea of operationalizing the infrastructure and the fact you know the high availability if you're running production infrastructure looking through the kind of system stack where your points of failure are and and it seems more and more that your master server puppet master or chef server uh, is something you want to make sure that, that you have some high availability or DR story for and it, I've actually heard that too in DR reports where people say you know we couldn't actually bring our infrastructure up we couldn't move it to Amazon because all of our master stuff was in the data center that is underwater or whatever it was so some good thoughts to kind of look through there yeah there's a it's kind of interesting how a lot of these tools that are used to build these HA infrastructures of web applications the the units used to build them themselves aren't typically set up as HA I've seen that in a number of places where they've got this like lovely HA infrastructure that's driven by a non-fault 
tolerant, non-high availability <laughs> right. single chef instance or something right. like that, where it's just like, oh, well, I see what you did there. Right, um, and, I'll, and I'll probably get all the haters on Twitter, but this is one of those things where people always hate on Subversion because it's like, well, when the Subversion server goes down, you're all screwed, and it's like, well... Just because Git is distributed, it doesn't mean... And yes, there's the whole story about, yes, everybody's history is on everybody's lap, blah, blah, blah. But I think there's a couple of things. You know, as you build infrastructure around it, you're not necessarily going to have the full data on everybody's laptops. And there's actually a move to start limiting the amount of history that you do. That's actually a feature, right, that you only pull certain parts of history, the parts that you want. And I know the Git developers are working, you know, have been talking about how to do that feature, quote-unquote, correctly. So that may not be the case with distributed version control in the future. So, again, version control, same sort of thing, something you got to think about. Last up tonight, we've got the learning to code debate. Uh, some thoughts on that. Yusuf pointed uh, this uh, article out to us. It's Terrence Eden's thoughts on learning to code versus learning computer science. This is a huge debate, and it seems like it's become a larger debate with the whole everyone must learn to code. That's what's wrong with our kids is they don't know C++. Um, Yusuf, you pointed this out to us. Where did you find this? I found this on Hacker News. Oh, okay, okay. It's kind of an interesting article. It talks a little bit about the differences between learning how to code and really specifically learning syntax as opposed to learning uh, computer science. And the example that he gives is, let's say you have um, a list of numbers you know, written down on a piece of paper and you want to sort those numbers. Uh, well, how would you do that? And he argues that there's obviously different ways of doing that. I mean, how do you handle duplicate numbers? Do you go greatest to um, smallest or the other way? So... And the other example that it gives us is um, if you're just learning syntax, then you're calling some sort function that people who are you know kids or whoever is learning about um, how, to, how to code don't really know the full implementation details. So the argument is the idea that you know in 10 years all these kids who are learning how to code in Objective C or whatever uh, are you know not going to JavaScript. Be, yeah, JavaScript are not going to be using this. They're going to be using some of the language. So it's not enough to teach kids how to code. You got to teach them computer science and you got to teach them how to think basically. Well, this is the eternal debate, and whenever somebody says, let's get kids coding because that's the future of the entire economy, it you might as well be saying, let's teach everyone to farm because that's the future of the economy. And, and the point being that these sort of blanket statements about how we can quote-unquote fix education by teaching everyone this one skill, whenever I read a post like this, it's like, well, okay, you're talking about college students, or you're talking about high school students, or you, are you, like, who are you talking about? I have a computer science degree. I know that uh, my university, I think a year or two after I graduated, started offering a software engineering degree, which I wish I had gotten instead, just because I find that more interesting. And that is sort of the fundamental difference he's calling out here. It's like the skills that a civil engineer learns are different than the skills that a physics major learns. And those seem to be sort of the, the eternal struggle and debate. And whenever this issue comes up, it's like, thank you for your opinion, but what problem are you fundamentally trying to solve? And that's where, whenever I read this stuff, it's like, it's always an interesting read because people pick different analogies. You know, he picked a sorting analogy, which I think is actually a good one because kind of walks through, like, if you look at all the sorting algorithms that when you call sort, it's good to, like, how would you manually sort? And then you can right. kind of make an analogy to bubble sort or the simple early sorting or algorithm. So I appreciate that, but it's always, you know, you hear both ends of the spectrum on this because you hear a lot of like from an economic standpoint, if you just want people to code and they're all going to be using some framework and they're all going to get certifications and we're going to turn them all into construction workers or the equivalent thereof, then why do you, should they care about computer science? 
is the counter argument. I don't necessarily agree with it, but yeah, what I did find interesting uh, about this is you know because I, I feel that this there there are a lot of arguments that tread this path, and a lot of them are talking about you know learning software engineering principles versus learning pure computer science, and I think there's a lot of there's a lot of room for that argument where, like, learning how to code well and learning how to code with others and learning some of that discipline of... Social actual, coding. Social coding and software, <laughs> so, software engineering practices that right. you may not learn otherwise has a lot of merit. Unfortunately, this article doesn't really talk about... It doesn't approach it from that angle. It's talking about learning, you know, the science beneath, you Well, know. It, it seems very... that Like, this article is very focused towards, like, basically younger people that are so high school and below that are interested in this sort of stuff and there's something to be said for a part of me feels like i would be a better coder in general if i had a um kind of a stronger math foundation earlier on but then again that's an argument for we should be teaching math like basic math skills and making that better than let's teach everyone javascript because everyone has a web browser now and who knows what they'll have in 10 years but anyway uh, always fodder for a debate we'd love to hear what listeners think about this because there's it's a constant sort of discussion topic uh next up shanley and amelia you're on the show Welcome back to The Ship Show. So today I'm joined by Stanley Kane and Amelia Greenhall of uh, Model View Culture. Welcome to The Ship Show. Thank you. So I wanted to start with, I know a lot of people know you, Shanley, from Twitter. And what's your Twitter name, Amelia? Oh, it's just Amelia Greenhall. Okay, simple. It's just your name. But I wanted to start with your background and how you got into tech. Tell us that story. Oh, uh, so I started doing a lot of stuff with programming and microcontrollers kind of in middle school and high school and got an electrical engineering degree. But then I shifted to kind of more like data stuff and ended up working for a lot of startups as it's kind of data and design work. So cool. So what people now call big data before or that kind of stuff or? Oh, yeah. I mean, you <laughs> data science. Data science. Okay. All right. Yeah, uh, so I started building, I got the internet when I was in middle school, which was dangerous. Started building websites and doing chat things and all that kind of stuff. And then I went to a very engineering-focused school program. So after after that happened, I moved out to Silicon Valley, got a job out here, and kind of just moved around different spaces. A lot of work in open source, distributed databases, application hosting, and generally the infrastructure space. Cool. All right. So, so this a lot of the the DevOps configuration management stuff, the rise of that. You you've <laughs> been yes, involved in all that, that kind of fun <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Yes. And but now you're doing a new thing, model view culture, which is after model view controller, right? Mm-hmm. The, that framework, which I, I, I saw the name and I was like, that's that's an awesome sort of pun on on the concept. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so Model View Culture is our new tech media company. Um, we launched about four weeks ago. 
It's independent tech media that focuses specifically on technology, culture, and diversity. So when we looked at the tech media landscape, we saw a huge need for independent media that wasn't tied to the interests of VCs and startups that was able to take sort of a critical position about the technology industry and that was also interested in diverse communities in tech which often get erased from mainstream tech media. So this is different than, um, which one is the one that they, they they basically found out that the reporters were kind of all reporting on startups that the VCs, it was this kind of circle of... of... I mean, I think that's just like happens <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> so this was sort of wanting to exist outside of that that space and that sort of cycle. Yeah, absolutely. I think we both were doing more community work in tech with diverse communities, with diversity issues, and doing more. I was doing a lot of blogging. Um, Amelia runs a literary uh, journal as well. So at some point, we were like, you know, there's a really big audience for this type of work. We were seeing it more in, in the community and, like, writing I was doing on these topics was getting like hundreds of thousands of page views. So it was like, okay, there's actually a market here that's not being served mm-hmm. by the existing uh, tech press. Yeah, and just the community events that we were organizing, it just seemed like there's there was a lot going on that wasn't getting covered in the tech press that was really interesting. Well, it seems like, too, the kind of quintessential issue when diversity comes up that people tend to think about that's in recent memory was the Python conference, the PyCon and the Twitter thing, right? And so point being that people have these moments in time that they think of when they think of like diversity, they think of, oh, that was that conference where that thing happened, as opposed to it's actually an issue that we should be talking about all the time. It's not these distinct it's, moments yeah, where it's, things it's blow up. It's not just these distinct moments of clickbait or the, the stuff that only gets covered when there's an, a big problem. When people get fired or, you know. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So you were saying that you, you had a background, Amelia, in, in doing literary publications, stuff like that. So right now this is, is it like a blog or is it a publication that you can subscribe? Like how would people follow it if they, is it all on Twitter? Uh, so it's a it's an online publication we're publishing it's sort of magazine style issues about every three weeks and mm. then we're doing a lot of print media as well this year so nice. the first print quarterly which is a 96 page book that's being printed locally comes out in April or shipping in April yeah so we have the online issues which is great because everyone can see a large amount of content freely available online and then we're we are selling print subscriptions to our print quarterly as Amelia mentioned and we've also started to do some community events we had our launch party with a number of panels focused on social justice and tech diversity and tech Um, and we're actually going to be expanding into podcasting and other types of media so we'll be publishing our own sort of news-focused podcast in the next few weeks. Nice. And then do you have a link where people like can, if they want to get print subscription? Do you have details on that? Yeah, if you just go to modelviewculture.com and click subscribe, it will um, take you through that process. Awesome. Okay, and we'll link to that in the show notes. So the first time I I guess I heard about you, Shanley, was a post, and, and Seth actually brought this up. We, we talked about it uh, on one of the episodes, a post about microaggression that you did. And it really resonated with me in a really big way, in an actually surprising way. And I, I think the big thing that was surprising for me was I had 
a very sort of abusive work experience that was sort of systemically abusive. But I didn't know that A, that it had a name, and yeah. B, that people actually were talking about it. So that was, first of all, I wanted to thank you for writing that because I didn't even know that was a thing, and, and it made me feel so much better, and it actually made me be able to sort of process it a little bit. So I guess the big thing is, like, how did you get into researching all of these power structures or whatever that, that, that play themselves out in sort of social spaces, whether they be open source or, or your workplace or, or whatever? Had you become such an expert on, <laughs> on all these things? Yeah, so I think one thing that's really interesting about the tech community is how it can be so isolated from other disciplines and areas of studies. Like, there's a massive school of thought around management, around power structures, around cultural studies and feminism, and that lens is not often accessible or known by people working within tech. So we're missing out on all of these tools for understanding our workplace environments. I guess the way that I like to look at it or, or to describe it is that there is often a lot of dynamics going on at work that are subtle, that aren't necessarily as overt. And as a tech culture, we are sort of invested in this idea of having this wonderful tech workplace and being self-fulfilled human beings and, and it's a meritocracy and we have no managers and there aren't any power structures. So we're actually incentivized not to think about those things as something that's operating in the workplace. Do you think we tend to, in the aggregate, shy away from those topics because, you know, the stereotype is engineers are sometimes lacking social skills? And I know I had to work a lot in my 20s on my own sort of social skills. Do you think it's people are kind of just like, I'm not very good at it, so I don't want to think about the nuances of what I'm actually saying. Is it that or is it? Yeah, no, I think that is a, I think that's an example of a stereotype or mythology that plays out in the way that we interact with each other because there's this huge stereotype that as technical people we are socially awkward and that we can't relate to people and that we can't pick up on social cues and stuff like that. And I actually think that that keeps us from acknowledging our role in social structures and from being informed participants and in, in being like good members of the community because we can hide behind that stereotype of like, well, you know, we're just socially, socially awkward. But actually, you know, I know tons of technical people and engineers who are not socially awkward at all. Like it's, just, it doesn't actually hold up, I don't think. And, and, and just accepting that as a given kind of excuses everyone. You know, why are we promoting managers who've never had any management training. Like, oh, you're the best engineer, so the next step is you become a manager. Obviously. I saw this all over in the game industry, and I thought it was just how engineers worked with each other. And I realized that they're, you know, the best engineer got promoted, and you're like, but he's terrible as a manager. Or in that, you see that over and over again. I didn't realize these structures existed and were working against everyone in the company. They, they, they kind of disenfranchise you from questioning the power structure because they're like, we're taking care of you. Aren't you happy? We're feeding you. Work-life balance is great for you. It was very well, interesting. Yeah, so I actually want to talk about that as a separate whole thing because you brought it up and that's actually a good thing to sort of talk about. But there is a lot of, you know, a lot of, a lot of engineers are very excited about, I want to learn Node or Ruby on Rails or whatever the next big thing is. Mm -hmm. It's it part of kind of the goal to be sort of like, hey, you can actually learn some of these, you know, mythologies you should have about the power structures and it can be just as interesting as 
learning some new go or whatever the fancy language of the moment and fad is. Yeah, absolutely. I think like becoming more well-rounded as a technology industry and within our teams and our companies is really, really important. And also to, you know, it's interesting because as engineers and programmers, you know, people are systems thinkers, but they don't think about the workplace they're in or the industry that they're in as a system. system, Right which is a huge missed opportunity because ultimately understanding how these things are functioning in your environment has a massive impact on what you produce. Theo from OmniTI had a great blog post the other day that was about the problem with us looking at engineers is sort of this solo elite group and thinking just about engineers instead of about the entire software development team and how all the software development team and the entire tech team, which includes this wide range of people and skill sets and how when we start to think about things as systems um, and the people around us in that way, we actually build better products and are better technologists. It's interesting you say that because you've probably heard this. There's, you know, the whole DevOps thing was the let's have developers and ops talk to each other, right? Mm -hmm. But there's this sort of undercurrent of, hey, we should have like sales dev or, you know, these like sales doesn't talk to dev and that's why they sell some feature that is like impossible, some feature that that is is totally insane, but they've already sold it to a customer. It seems like you're kind of talking about that. It's where it's like legal and finance and like all of these groups should actually be uh, more cohesively interacting, not just not just dev and ops or right or not just the engineering team yeah absolutely um yeah i mean even like i think sales and engineering is a great example when sales and engineering can work well together or when you and when you name it growth hacker so that men (laughs) (laughs) just like bringing sales and engineering together like you're starting to see it happening now a little bit more and being renamed like growth hacker Oh, I haven't heard about. It. Is that like a, stuff, Paul? Well, I'm I'm learning stuff all the time. So, is this in like like where does that name come from? Is it or where where's that term used? I think it's a rebranding of like traditional marketing roles. I think especially as women have gained higher positions within tech and within marketing, there's been a push to sort of devalue marketing work and have to separate the work that men do. Oh, I understand. Okay, I get what you're saying. You're hacking on the growth of the growth hacker. I got it. Yeah. Okay. And then, yeah. I got you. Okay. <laughs> I got you. Okay. Yeah, so in, instead of calling it marketing, which it basically is marketing, we're like, oh, it's about hacking and programming and like masculine and exciting and, and stuff like this. And it's basically just a rebranding of the same stuff that people have been doing in tech for for years so <laughs> well there there we go new new term growth hacker yeah it's it's kind of funny to see I, I don't know if it's good or bad but you do see that in other departments where they're trying to I mean that's actually a good question where you know so you see the finance people in there I mean I could book hacking would probably be a bad <laughs> hacking the books but but you know you do see that sort of taking that attitude of like, hey, we're hackers and we're disrupting stuff Mm -hmm. to different parts of the company. And that's kind of interesting. I mean, in some sense, from a interaction dynamics, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. People are trying to like relate to each other. But on the other hand, it's kind of funny. Like there are examples where it's like in terms of facilities, you kind of don't want to be flying by the seat of your pants on that. And you can't refactor the building like you can code. So it's funny. There's like this first level of trying to understand, but sometimes there is lacking applicability because you wouldn't want to run finance like you do engineers want to get paid they don't you don't want to be hacking around with the budget do you find that a lot in some of these 
sort of terms or ways that people are trying to connect, but they're it's not quite fitting right or or, or people okay. are needing more vocabulary to talk about it. I think that's a big theme throughout the writing that we've been publishing so far is kind of like, how are we actually talking about these problems or how can we label them? Like you felt really good once you could put a label on microaggressions and like everyone who learns the word imposter syndrome and then can label it has a eureka moment. It's like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad it's not just me that feels like this, like that I'm a fake, like that I'll be discovered at any moment. It's actually a thing. And like once you can name the problem or label these systems of things that are happening and look at them critically, that makes it a lot easier. I think labels have been huge for me, especially following the work that's come out, especially like the 10x engineer stuff. I had never really heard that before I had read uh, one of Shanley's posts, and then I realized that that was a real person. And that just wasn't a real person. It was a real problem inside of the industry. And to the 10x engineer sometimes often causes the, the hero problem, which I think yeah. we've discussed too, where it's like we can make poor business decisions because we, we incentivize heroes to come and fix that for us. And I know, Seth, in the gaming industry, you talk about that all the time. I have. I just, well, the, the myth of the 10x person was alive and well, and it was that you know, people would look the other way on things that would be instant HR violations in any other industry. That's what, that's what always bothered me is it was so uneven. You'd be, have these people that are like, oh no, he's just that way. And well, that was those. Yeah, 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 exactly. And it would just throw all decent business practices kind of out the window for this this person that they supposedly couldn't lose. And it's much more satisfying to work on a team of people who all are decent people than it is to work on a team that has one really really productive person who's constantly being that role. So that yeah, that's that one struck a particular chord with. Me. Now, Shanley, I wanted to ask about this because you brought this up a couple times: meritocracy. Mm-hmm. People used to think that was a good thing or in the industry that was very valued and and I've seen you talk about that a little bit a lot of people starting to talk about the dirty secret is meritocracy is really just capital P privilege Um, and so I wanted to talk a little bit about that like how you're examining that and how that's starting to sort of unravel as a myth. Yeah absolutely I think it's interesting when you, you look at sort of the mainstream tech industry in some ways has a rebellion complex of like we are going to set Disrupt. up this yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> we're going to set up this utopian world that's separated from everyone where 12 miles off the coast yeah yeah, where, that guy. yeah and i mean there are literally people in tech who are talking about defecting from all other <laughs> all other political land structures i mean period. they could just go they could that would just be fine <laughs> Well, let me, and I don't need to interrupt you, but where do you think, because there is a huge undercurrent of that. Where do you think that comes from? And you see it a lot, too, in the, where companies are, are basically, you don't want to say they're breaking the law, but they're, like, in a very legal gray area, and they're just like, well, come, come sue me. That kind of attitude of we're yeah. not. Where do you think that comes from? Um, arrogance, privilege, like, I, well, to, to talk about the industry overall, when, when people in this industry are in this position where they are, many people in tech are in the top, top portion of wealth in the mm-hmm. entire world and the, the top access to education and resources and, you know, money and all of this stuff. And I think there's kind of a need to justify that by saying, well, we're the best. It's a meritocracy. Like, the reason why, you we know, got here this... because we're Exactly, the best, because right? we're the best. Rather than saying, oh, the reason we got here is because of patriarchy, where men are given 
specifically white men, like patriarchy and white supremacy and all of these systems that are consistently resulting in the same type of people having access to these jobs. And that fact is very much in conflict with sort of the hacker dream, you know, of being outside of the system, of like excelling, of being like self-defined and self-actualized. So there's this enormous sort of conflict between what the tech industry likes to think of itself as and what the reality of those systems are. And so you did a presentation uh, on this at Distill where you basically were talking about engineering culture myths and sort of stories and fantasies. And it sounds like you're kind of talking about that. It's the story we tell ourselves. And yeah. as long as we keep on message and keep telling that story, it'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> right? Well, then you don't have to examine like, oh, you know, our startup has grown and we in the past six years have grown from, you know, a few engineers and now we have like 60 engineers, but we haven't hired any women and other axes of diversity looking pretty bad too. But because it's meritocracy, if anybody else had been have enough merit to be hired, we surely would have hired them rather than taking a look and being like, oh, we actually need to change our hiring practices. Well, it seems to me too, and we were going to talk about diversity discussions as well, and this is, it seems like you hear that theme a lot in terms of uh, a lot of times when people talk about hiring women in the workplace and then they say, well, it's a pipeline problem. Okay. I'm not getting people applying. And so that's the response to that. And so I guess my question is a lot of times we, we get into this sort of, okay, there's a problem. And then people that maybe are trying to solve it, maybe they're just saying that who knows, but they're saying, well, we have a pipeline problem. You see it at conferences where it's like, well, the reason we don't have any women speaking is because we could, you know, nobody applied. Yeah. So you should link to the conference uh, bingo card. <laughs> <laughs> well, and here's the thing. I, sometimes it takes a little bit of judgment on whoever's saying that to sometimes call because sometimes it's obviously they, yeah. they could do something different. But my, my, I guess my question is, how do you sort of detangle that? Because you could say that, that it is a pipeline problem and do a statistical analysis, but I suspect that's probably not a good answer, right? I mean, yeah, I love, I really love the opportunity to talk about the pipeline issue because, and instead of looking at at that is sort of the very entry point at where people um, begin in technology. What we instead have to look at is the entire human life cycle and what, like there is attrition of minorities and marginalized groups in tech from birth up until retirement at every single stage. So for example, yes, less women join tech careers. However, women consistently represent 20 to 30% of the industry. Yet most conferences don't have 20 to 30% women speakers. Women only receive 4% of VC funding and women only attain 4% of senior IT positions. So there's actually like breakdowns happening in the stage of the life cycle that we have control over in promotion, advancement, funding, starting companies and stuff like that. So I am always skeptical of people who would rather focus on the problem. Like they the girls are the future, about. but that's that's not our problem. Maybe yeah. the education system needs to be fixed, but meanwhile, we're just going to keep doing what we're doing. Well, and then also, too, I mean, uh, and I hate to bring it up because I hate to give this person any more airtime, but when you have Paul Graham saying just jack comments like, I don't know how you get female teenagers interested in tech. It's just like, even if you believed that he wanted to help that problem, like you're actively not helping the problem. So it seems like when you were talking about this, I remember Ash's talk uh, at FlowCon talking about how she had some statistics about women entering the industry, but then like getting actively getting out because there's just so much bull 
that they have to deal with. And that was surprising for me because I was I didn't even know. Yeah, like, the one from the Anita Borg Institute that's like within 10 years, yeah. 56% of women will quit the tech industry, which is twice the rate of men. You know, like that's a lot. Yeah, well, and, and you've had, I, I wanted to ask about this because you've tweeted, you retweeted and had some tweets about some really just shocking stuff. Mm -hmm. and, and you retweeted at Dovely, uh, Meg saying that she was once told that by pointing out all the recent hires were men that uh, she could be reported to HR. I'm sure you get stories like that all the time that are just sort of shocking. Yeah, I mean, looking at the that woman hashtag that you were just talking about, it's full of stories. So you can just search for, we'll, we'll put a link in the show notes with the search, but that woman, it has more stories like these. I'm curious, are there any obviously anonymized particularly egregious ones, and Ash had some in her talk that just were, she, she gave this statistic about open source participation, and again, the whole meritocracy argument that it's, it's, it doesn't match the industry demographics, and when you have, you know, Linus Torvalds opening his mouth, it's the same sort of thing. <laughs> I mean, it's easy yeah. to understand why, but do, do you have any stories that come to mind where... Yeah, um, I mean, just things that are fairly frequent off the top of my head. You know, women do get sexually assaulted at conferences, and it happens a lot. And the times that we hear about it are just a small fraction of the times that that actually happens. So it happens at events. And then in the workplace, I get reports uh, a great deal of people who are abused by their managers and their coworkers and, and stuff like that in their workplace. Then they get fired for reporting it or for making it into an issue. Online harassment of women in tech is pretty endemic as well. Um, <laughs> death and rape threats are really common for... That's the big one that you always see when things blow up. That, mm -hmm. uh, that I was shocked when I first heard about it. I, and it wasn't even the Python conference thing. It was something earlier. I was shocked that that happened. But then it was like, that's apparently just a thing now. And, and it's not acceptable. I'm just saying, yeah. like, that pretty much is an internet go-to response, which I don't understand why that why people's minds go there. Yeah, and that's just, I think the, the really scary thing is, is that's just sort of the overt stuff. That's not even touching. talking about the subtle yeah, stuff. Yeah, we're not even talking about like how difficult it is to get hired, to get promoted. You know, the sort of subtle microaggressions that happen in the workplace, the lack of opportunity, and sort of how that impacts your career over time. So, yeah, it's <laughs> when you start to add it all up. Um, you really see this is not a meritocracy. This is a system where there's endemic abuse, harassment, sexism, racism. I, I was reading through your Twitter stream before the show, and I think it might have been actually the, that woman hashtag. And it, you had, it might have been you or somebody else that you retweeted was saying something about, I don't know why I'm so threatening. I'm just trying to get home from the conference safely. And I will say, as a male, that's not even something that, I mean, it's on my radar now. But that's not even something I think that a lot of people would think is a problem. And it's interesting to, to, to say, no, actually, actually it is. That's a, that's a, that, something as simple as that is an issue that we need to at least, I mean, discuss before we can really even address it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think, you know, women, especially when women speak up about sexism in, in the industry, their responses can be really ridiculous. Lots of times there's an attempt to portray 
the women speaking up as the dangerous ones and the angry ones and the irrational ones. And this is part of hundreds and hundreds of years of, of <laughs> systemic stereotyping of women that happens. But it's it's really striking when you see women talking about how to protect um, ourselves from rapists, harassers, abusers, and they are getting called the angry and irrational and scary ones. I mean, that just shows the sort of deep, how yeah, broken it is. And really. like when people start to like first become aware of it, like it's it's hard to talk about it. And then when we do, we get those responses or not believed. And so it's like, okay, there's all these conversations going on on underground mailing lists, on other non-public groups that you're not privy to because you haven't earned trust. And so then you keep going along not realizing that all these things are happening. Well, and it's funny too. I was just thinking when you were, you know, when you were talking about people speaking out and then being characterized as being angry or, or whatever. And I, you know, I was thinking to myself, it's like, I've seen, and, and we see this, you see some of those videos of like Steve Ballmer, like going crazy on stage mm -hmm. or, you know, these, these very patriarchal archetypes of CEOs and VCs and, you know, they can throw temper tantrums, but it's not, and it is a temper tantrum. They're on the floor screaming or whatever. And I've actually experienced that personally, not with Steve Ballmer, obviously, but, <laughs> but with, um, people and it's funny it's not characterized right that's I am I'm in charge I'm your father and I'm you know flipping out we see that with another way that that plays out is that a lot of the time the coverage around the VC issues is like this prominent VC said something that was terribly sexist and racist and that gets a major news cycle but in some ways that's a big distraction campaign from the fact that like VCs have been systemically underfunding marginalized technologists for like decades and the, and the impact on that over time to our communities is like devastating honestly so we're we actually have an article on this in our upcoming quarterly so you should subscribe if you're interested in reading more but like yeah the idea that sometimes the the fits and the the fits of like powerful white men capture all of our attention but sort of the subtle systemic stuff that happens over time gets ignored. Yeah, I mean, the piece is just basically like we need to go beyond the tabloid spread and stop only covering the issue of sexism in VC when someone says something absolutely terrible and then, you know, maybe like the Wall Street Journal gives an opinion column and lets this person publish it and then there's a news cycle around that and then it quiets back down and we never actually spend any time looking at the numbers and doing, you know, like getting the research done that isn't there yet. Yeah. Well, and it seems like that's that's an example of, as humans, we're hardwired for problems that are in our faces, right? The lion behind the tree or whatever. And, and when you talk about problems, I think the, the technical definition is wicked problems, mm. global warming, things like that. Slow uh, affecting problems that we have, we tend to tune those out because they're not, it's not the lion in our face. So similarly, the VC saying something stupid yeah. gets the, the press cycle because that's the lion. That's where all the people that, that are trying to, not all the people, but a lot of people that are trying to make it better can focus energy. But you were saying the systemic, uh, systemically underfunded sort of issue doesn't really get addressed. Or just the makeup of the venture capital firms themselves. If you look at those, they certainly don't reflect any of the diversity that they're claiming to try to be pushing for. And that's really unfortunate is that we're not seeing that. That systemic, we're not fixing it. We're just all yelling at something and then yeah. having yeah. it go away. Yeah. <laughs> 
Exactly. So we were talking about conference stuff. I, I did want to ask, I've seen, actually, I may have been out of the loop on this, but in, in this conference cycle is the first, the 2014 conference cycle is the first cycle that I've heard where people are very focused on codes of conduct and sort of like, I will not speak at conferences that don't have codes of conduct and, and sort of making that like making that a thing. And I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, what what are your thoughts on that? Do you find different qualities of codes of conduct? Do they help? So they definitely help and they're super necessary. I'd say the proven go-to code of conduct is just based on the ADA initiatives work, which is on the Geek Feminism Wiki. And it's a, a template that conferences can adapt to their needs. Yeah, and at Model View Culture, we have a code of conduct for all of our events, and we also won't participate in ones that don't have one. There's been, it's it's not something that we've specifically focused on in sort of our activism work, I don't think, but there's a lot of really great... Well, I have gotten to conferences to get codes of conduct. Yes. Oh, good. Okay, awesome. <laughs> and I thought, because I was but, researching this, was it on the Geek Feminism Wiki that they had a list of conferences? They were tracking ones that had codes of conduct with the links to it. And, and what was surprising me actually is some had codes of conduct, and then they got they decided to remove them. I guess they decided to be jerky again or something. <laughs> One of the hacker spaces like had a code of conduct, and then it actually was struck out. Oh wow! <laughs> so, so that's why I was like, well, that's kind of interesting. There's a list of you know, hundreds of conferences have adopted them so far and it's definitely becoming standard. And there is some pushback that we've been seeing mostly from white dudes who are like, I don't think it's necessary or I won't go to one if there is one. Like, what do you think we think of you? Like, what? Hmm. Like, the only people who are going to object to ones are the people who benefit from being in the position to harass people. Like the, um, the, the fear and the resistance has been really alarming because it's kind of like just saying, okay, everyone's going to be safe at our conference. And and just kind of just saying, well, I don't see why we would need that instead of maybe I don't see why I can't be a jack. Right. It's 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 that's been alarming. I was just it's one of those it's like clearly a good thing and yet people who consider this, themselves reasonably intelligent are pushing back so hard against something that really would never affect them in their day to day life. Alarming. Yeah, I mean a lot of people are starting to become more aware of it as the community is working more on documenting. So on the Geek Feminism Wiki, there's a timeline of incidents that it just goes back decades and just is documenting all the sexist and terrible incidents that have happened mostly around conferences and in tech. And just like looking at that and then still trying to make the argument that it's not necessary, I don't know. It's just kind of ridiculous to me. Well, part of me, and too, yeah, yeah that it is one of those things where you're like, who knows what, what people are actually thinking. It's like the pushback against, oh, there's some document now telling me I have to not do... I don't know. It, it's it's weird. Yeah, I mean, tech remains a very, like, deprofessionalized industry. We're very attached to, like, being casual and not having strict rules and regulations. Or, like, being able to feel like you're, like, a rebel or a maverick or, yeah. you know, like... Yeah, and it's funny though that that there's not nothing on its face seemingly wrong with that until that implies certain behaviors, which are actually very wrong. So it's interesting that bringing your dog to the office or whatever it is, right, yeah. is is casual Friday, whatever, is not there's nothing bad about that. Yeah. But when does casual Fridays imply I can go 
assault people or say, really, that's, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. I wanted to ask a little bit. You are known for your Twitter controversies. Yeah. And it's funny. I, I A lot of times I feel like I stumble into Twitter controversies because I didn't see what started them. So I wanted to ask, do you, a lot of times, do, do you just like tweet something people people pile on that? Or how do, how do, how do those unfold? Because here's the thing. I will say this. I actually learn a lot when I go and read those threads. And the other thing is I've actually found some really, really interesting people to follow of people that you retweeted and chime in. So they're, they're actually hugely educational for you. But like I said, I feel like I missed the... The genesis of the <laughs> of the scrum match or whatever as it may be. So yeah, so Twitter. I think Twitter has played a really. I mean, there's a lot of conversation going on not just within tech but in the broader feminist community about um, you know the role of Twitter and the activism. We actually had a great article by Sui Park um, in our latest issue that's online that covers some of the intricacies around this. But you know, I think Twitter has been a really important medium for diverse communities in tech to express their thoughts and opinions about things, find other people who care about similar topics and stuff like that. I think that's been the big one, right, is that you see people, I mean, we were talking about that earlier with the That Woman hashtag, yeah. about commiserating and exchanging these stories that, yeah. you know, really make you can make you feel like you're not the only one experiencing that thing. Yeah, and it, it can create a lot of visibility around important issues. You know, I think a lot of the reason why there is so much controversy around this stuff is, like, tech is very much in a period of change of getting a, a greater level of social consciousness. And then so as part of that process, there's a lot of friction and public public disagreement and stuff like that around it because we're starting to hear more and more about the stuff that's happening and people are starting to speak out more and more. So that creates sort of this air quotes, controversy, <laughs> well, you know, yeah, I mean, it happens a lot when people say something that's kind of objectively terrible, and then when they get called out on it or gently made fun of for it, they just dig, dig in deeper and further instead of being like, oh, actually, wow, I just did some Google searches and realized there's a bunch of articles explaining very clearly why this thing that I did or said is actively horrible and oppressive and I'm really sorry and I'm gonna take steps and you know like people like forget how to Google like when yeah. when they're called out on this. Well there is context is always very difficult on Twitter. And that's actually one thing I did want to ask you because there have been a couple of instances where somebody says and this is white guy talking here, so mm -hmm. I'm gonna preface what I'm about to say. Somebody says something stupid and you call them on it and then some other people call them on it. And then they're kinda of like, oh, I didn't mean that. Uh, and they may not apologize, but they're kind of whatever. And then you're like, no, f*** you, blah, 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 blah. And so here's my question. I'm left reading that conversation going, I, I, I sort of understand both sides. And I'm wondering, in situations like that, where somebody seems like they are genuinely either confused by the stupid thing they said, and sometimes I get, oh, what you said was stupid, and sometimes I'm like, I don't get why that's offensive. But I can understand that other people were offended. What what would you have wanted them to say? The context is usually that we're seeing this all in a lens of like, this is the hundredth time that some white guy has concerned trolled us, you know, like said, oh, I fully support what you're doing, or I want to help you, except I want you to be doing something completely different. So we're tired of that, you know, like we don't actually feel like we want to spend a lot of time or energy 
educating them when it's all out there already and they just really need to go Google it. Well, I see, I was going to say, I see that a lot and that's something that has, like, educational for me is a lot of people do the, well, tell me why I'm wrong, teach me why I'm wrong, despite the fact that there's a body of literature already out there telling How them. How else will they learn, you know, like, <laughs> Right. No. <laughs> if, if you don't hold my hand and tell me why, why I'm wrong, which they're usually like, I don't believe I'm wrong, but if you don't tell, hold me by the hand and tell me exactly why I'm wrong and show me all of the links, then your argument is invalid, and it's terrible. So that's actually a, a, an answer that makes sense, and I guess I would say sometimes I guess I feel like that, and I, I feel like I'm the You feel person. like you want to be individually educated? or No, no, no. I feel like I've said something stupid, and I totally do not mean... I didn't intend what, you know, I just didn't, I, I, I call it do the math. I didn't do the math on the, what my statement actually meant. It's like I didn't even know that was a thing. And I'm genuinely like, oh. Now, you were saying in the example that, that I was thinking of, that was a very specific, like somebody saying, I'm trying to help you. In. But so I guess my question is, like, what can somebody do if they really, they really didn't mean to screw up, but they did? I mean, I think people very rarely get, like, if, if you say something that's really offensive, if you, if you say something that's that's really offensive to a group of people, generally the pattern is a few people will be like, you know, hey, that's not cool, like, this is why. And then where things go really wrong is when the person, like, doubles down, tries to turn themselves, yeah, tries to turn themselves into a victim, tries to demand things, you know, tries or just to... Like is so unused to being called out on it that they immediately turned to tone policing and being like, a woman is swearing at me? Somebody used all caps? And like that's, and then they like characterize it as an attack where like, no, like you're actually just getting called out on something you're doing wrong. Yeah, so it's kind of a myth that in general, if someone says something that's offensive and then they're like, oh, I sincerely apologize and, <clears throat> you know, it won't happen again and, like, I understand what happened, there's very rarely, like, an ongoing dynamic there because people, we, like, people don't have time to, like, it, it's usually when someone really, like, especially when they're in a position of power and influence in the community and they just are, like, refusing to recognize and to fix their sort of role and problem. Well, one thing I will definitely say, I mean, the reason I, I asked is because I've, I've seen that conversation a couple of times, but it is Twitter. I like yeah. to call those Twitversations because <laughs> there's only so much context you can do even if it's a back and forth. Yeah. Um, but but I, that leads me to kind of the, the last thing I really wanted to talk about. I, you probably hear this a lot, so what I'm about to say is gonna, you're probably going to sigh, and that's, again, white guy talking here. But it's kind of like, okay, when I hear these things that happen, I, I agree they're appalling, and I, and I want to help, and I, and I don't want to say things. And I've been in diversity discussions where I'm thinking to myself, oh, did, you know, you're kind of going back in your head, like, did I ever do anything? And, and, and there really is a genuine, like, I probably have f***ed up in the past, I don't want to do it again. Yeah. So sometimes it's hard to be like you were saying, educate yourself. Obviously, there's the the geek feminism wiki. So there's like a list of links. Put those in the the show notes. Yeah. That you should like definitely go and check out. But what can stupid white dudes that can sometimes <laughs> be stupid? What can we do that is actually genuine and it doesn't sound like we're just saying it to be politically correct? Yeah, I mean, well, I think first, like, it's important to recognize that even it's really 
like everyone in the community has to do a better job just because you're a woman in in the industry doesn't necessarily mean that you're not part of the problem. These issues are very complex and intersectional. So I, I think that the question needs to be like, what can we all do? But some stuff that I think is really important as tech workers is that we do work to educate ourselves. There's more and more resources, blogs, writing coming up, uh, more and more sort of conferences and groups that are focused on these issues. So getting to know those organizations, you can volunteer with them, you can contribute time. People are always looking for money to help fund projects that support diversity, which is a great way to help. There's lots of independent writers and activists who are sort of community funding like Ash Dryden. There's a brilliant games critic named Maddie Bryce who does this. Mm -hmm. So supporting. I've been support I've been funding her on Patreon as well. So I was I was oh, for her to give great. a shout out. <laughs> yeah, she's awesome. So there's there's that type of thing you can do. Um, of course, buy a subscription to Model View Culture to support independent tech media. And we write a lot about these topics. And then I think one place, if you are working within the mainstream tech world, is to see what you can do inside your company. Like, how can you advocate for more diversity? If you're a manager, like, build a diverse team. If you're an employee, you know, help advocate for diversity being an important value for sponsoring conferences that have codes of conduct, for thinking, you know, through these issues. So I think we have so many places in our immediate communities and lives where we can affect positive change. So I always encourage people to sort of focus in, in those areas that they're already sort of working in and touching because that's the areas that they know the most about and they're probably most empowered to change. When I remember Ash in her talk was talking about, had a couple slides on, learn how to sincerely apologize. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like that's actually one of the simplest things that we don't, we don't do that we can learn how to do. Yeah. And it actually could stop a lot of these things before they snowball into... Because you said this a few times, it's like the real problem comes when people double down on being an yeah. asshole. Right? Exactly. Well, double, they double down on explaining, and sometimes all they need to do is just listen and just listen for a long time and not not interject at all. It's I think that's a powerful tool to learning the, the problems that everyone else is facing, not your problems, because it's usually not about your problems. Yeah. It's not about you. Yeah, and like when you're thinking about how can I help with like money or time, being sure that you give your money with no strings, you know, like not giving it to an organization, but then trying to tell them what to do with it or trying to volunteer for an organization, but then saying what you're going to do. Like actually being like, how can I help further your mission in whatever way is most helpful to you? Yeah, absolutely. Well, Stanley, Amelia, thanks for joining us. If you want to follow your Amelia Greenhall, at Amelia Greenhall on Twitter, mm -hmm. you're, of course, Stanley. Yes. And then uh, Model View Culture on Twitter is Model View Media mm -hmm. to encompass all the stuff you're doing, all the yes. stuff you're working on. Exactly. All right, awesome. Thanks for joining us here on The Ship Show. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to talk to you. And we'll be back in a moment. Alright, well
Welcome back to Chip Show. So for our last segment tonight, I keep promising tooltips. We keep bringing up tooltips, and here's another one. Tooltip tonight is Incron. It's a iNotify-based cron system, which is kind of interesting concept. So basically, we all know and, and love cron. It runs commands based on time. In cron, basically, you could point it at a file, and when it receives an iNotify event, like a read or a write or whatever, it will run a command. So it's great for like auto-reloading daemon files and things like that when things change. Some of the examples that they give are the ones I just said, detecting changes in files and directories for restarting daemons. Interestingly, they have guarding critical files uh, and notification thereof. You can do something where it'll tell you how many times a particular file is used, usage statistics, which is kind of interesting. You can monitor installations of things outside of package systems. Automatic on-change backup or versioning, which actually would be good for certain use cases. Maybe, you know, I can see it for like home use cases where you've got like your home directory or a directory you want to watch. They also have reflecting changes to search databases, which I that's weird. I don't know how you'd use that for that. But it, it's a definitely different model for cron. It's kind of, it, it, it seems like it would contort. You could come up with some interesting uses based now, not that it's not time-based, but usage-based. Yeah, it's, it's, there's so many things you can do with it, but I feel like there's systems for doing all of the other things because they're, they're like uh, they're like intrusion detection systems and file modifications, you know, systems already like aid and stuff that you use for kind of forensics and, you know, security. So it's just, I don't know, it seems it seems like a novel a novel thing, but I don't know. I just can't think of anything that I would actually use it for. You know, I, I think can... of something. I just thought of something, actually. Can you do, like, so, Paul, you were saying that you could do, like, notifications on files. So are we talking, like, any file, even a network pipe? Or this... Probably. I mean, anything that I notify could can do. So maybe, I don't know, you could use it to, like, you know, monitor or do schedule notifications for traffic going across some kind of a pipe or, you know, whatever. I mean, yeah, you know, maybe something that you don't expect a lot of traffic on or any traffic on, for example. Um, so, so you know what I could see this being used? A lot of these tools aren't necessarily things, I was just kind of thinking about this as I was describing it, aren't things you would necessarily use in quote-unquote production, but they are useful in sort of your personal toolbox. So the thing is, I'm not going to set up Tripwire on my home machine. Maybe I should, yeah, actually, yeah. but I'm, I'm just not going to do it, right? <laughs> totally. um, but there are cases where it's like, I actually have a snapshots directory that uh, every night takes a snapshot of a set of important files, like my mail queue or whatever it is, and it backs it up. It might be interesting to have iNotify basically make it so that, uh, I mean, I could reduce, now that I think about it, using a tool like this by orders of magnitude, the files that I'm backing up. Because right now, I back up my entire mail directory, and it has folders in it that aren't touched daily, and it has folders that are. So if you basically said watch this directory for file changes and then add that to a list of things you just back up, so it's not even incremental backup, it's just, oh, this file changed, go back it up tonight. And then you maybe did a full backup on Sunday. You know, I upload that stuff to S3, so there's money savings right there. And I'm, again, not going to set up some big elaborate system to do that. Or for for the stupid cases, my home mail server, where I may not have that chefized uh, or puppetized, where I just want all these configuration files, if they change, restart the daemon for me or something like that. You so do what I tell you. It, yeah, so so I you know, I, I think that's a, actually a really good point, Seth, that this this tool in particular is kind of hard to think about because it really is warping the way you think about cron. It's, not, again, not time-based. Right, right. Um, but I do think it's one of those tools where even if there are other tools in qu- production environments... Like message queues or something like that that you could use to, you know, receive notifications. And yeah, yeah. 
And actually, maybe we should maybe we should have a, a contest. Listeners, what could you use Incron for? <laughs> Tweet us at Chip Show Podcast. Most, most interesting usage. Yeah, let us know. Crew at the Chip Show or Chip Show Podcast. So a couple of interesting things that we wanted to mention. Uh, Rest of DevOps is a new podcast that they're on episode four or five, uh, and they're uh, discussing a lot of DevOps concepts. Actually, did a hangout with Matt and Trevor uh, a couple weeks ago, and they were saying that it's a good podcast for uh, if you're new to sort of DevOps and all this stuff. So they they take kind of intro a lot of introductory concepts and and go through them. And it's kind of funny actually. While we were having the hangout, we came up with their slogan, which is there's always DevOps in the banana stand, which if you're a, a rest of development fan, you'll get the reference. But Sasha's going to be on the next episode, so you should definitely check that out. I think uh, they're going to be talking DevOps myths, I think is what the topic was. So check that out. Add it to your cornucopia of DevOps podcasts. I uh, also wanted to mention a couple of conferences that are coming up. Again, we'll link to the big list. We found now that there's DevOps conferences, they have other types of conferences on there as well. But I wanted to give a specific shout out to Mountain West DevOps, which is March 19th in Salt Lake City. I will actually be there presenting, talking about DevOpsy things. So check that out if you're in the area or attending. It's part of the Mountain West, I think, Ruby series. So they're doing DevOps. I actually, Hack Week JavaScript DevOps Ruby. So it's part of that. That whole event. So check that out. And then also, uh, Usenix is doing a release engineering conference, and I, I loves me my release engineering conferences because you guys get to have your DevOps conferences, and I got to get in my old school <laughs> release engineering conferences. So uh, we'll put a link to that. That's actually coming together as we speak. And then you should definitely check out the links if you're looking for conferency stuff. Uh, I know that ChefConf CF. P's are supposed to come out. They're supposed to come out today, Nathan. I bugged you about it, um, <laughs> and I don't think they're out. But yeah, no, I bet they'll they'll be out soon. Uh, I know they're they're working through that as we speak. We'll uh, again link to all that stuff. So from San Francisco, trying to stay dry. This is Paul Reed signing off. From San Diego, this is Yusuf signing off. And from Chile, Austin, Texas, this is Seth signing off. And we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Yeah.